Now, as you might know, we've been doing a series around here called How to Pray, a Simple Guide for Normal People. And uh, there, it's, by, it's a book by the same name, um, authored by Pete Gregg. And it is a really awesome guide for our series. I encourage you to pick up the book of, of that same title. And uh, this series is really about demystifying prayer. It's really about bringing it down, not just uh, to get you to pray, but I want you to enjoy praying. Some of you look like you need to enjoy something. (laughs) Come on, smile at me. Give me a little smile. Okay, good. Can you imagine enjoying prayer? That's what I think God wants for you and I. And we're digging deeper into what's known as the Lord's Prayer. And so in Luke 11, verse 1, it says, one day it happened that Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples says, Lord, teach us to pray. And the reason this is so interesting is because the, the uh, disciples already knew how to pray in a sense, right? They were good Jewish boys. They would have grown up praying. They would have understood what prayer was, but when they heard Jesus pray, they knew it was different. Something about him and the way he lived and the way he prayed caused them to think differently about prayer. And so they wanted Jesus to teach them. And so this famous prayer, this world famous prayer came out of his mouth. And I want you to say it with me. Come on, let's say it together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, if you're in a prayer group or something and you've like been taking turns praying and there's this one guy in your group, I'll, I'll call him Jesus, I just guy. As in, Jesus, I just pray for my friend. Jesus, I just pray for our city. Jesus, I just, Jesus, I just, Jesus. It's a condition. There's a problem. Like, The start of the Lord's Prayer is Heavenly Father. See, Jesus gave us words to pray. Now, they're not just words. They lead us to something else. And I want to peel back that layer. Somebody somebody else in your group might be like, Father God, I just pray that you would just, Father God, work in the name of Jesus. And we just, in our city, Father God, Father God, we just pray for all the people who are sick. Father God, he knows who he is. You don't have to say his name over and over again. He knows who he is. Now, this is kind of a humorous thing, right? We all, all of us, even your pastor, develops like patterns of praying. But I want to take the lid off of some of those patterns. I want to I show you this pattern of prayer. What we've been doing is going through this pattern of prayer of the Lord's Prayer. But we must, if we're going to be people who pray and who enjoy it, we must move past these cliches that we use as filler. We must move past the platitudes 
that we end up relying on in prayer. And we need to get down to the heart of what Jesus was trying to coach his disciples about what to pray for. And I would challenge you that all of us need to develop our vocabulary of prayer in a greater way. You've got a little handout on your chair when you came in. And it says, um, I think it says prayer principles or prayer points on the back. I'm giving you this today because I want you to take this home because after our message today, I want you to be armed with how to pray. And there's some ideas here that I think are really significant. I think when you pray the scriptures, when you pray the scriptures, you pray the will of God. It's what he's already said. You pray in the name of Jesus. That means you're in the family. You have power and authority. You pray in the Holy Spirit, meaning be under the leadership and direction of the Holy Spirit. You pray together. There's power and agreement, and you pray consistently. And I want you to take that home, and I want you to use that as we, as we talk about something so significant today. We're going to look at the line in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think oftentimes there's a there's a, like we've re, we read this line in the prayer and we might, you know, it seems a little strange at first glance. This phrase might seem confusing to some. Do I have to talk God into leading me out of temptation? The answer is no. That's not what this means. This prayer, this line in the prayer is really more about surrendering to God in order to fight sin and overcome evil. This prayer is not just about asking God to keep you from harm, right? It is also about experiencing his strength and his deliverance from temptation and from evil. I like how theologian and author Dallas Willard translated this line in his really amazing book, The Divine Conspiracy. He said, Lord, should I at any point be tempted by the enemy? Or led through a test or a trial by you, I want to come out delivered and victorious. That's pretty cool, isn't it? In other words, in other words, I know how weak I am. Remind me of how strong you are. We're saying to God, only you have the strength that we need to battle temptation, and only you have the power to deliver us from the evil one. And that's really significant. When you consider what C.S. Lewis wrote in his landmark book, Mere Christianity. It's in your message notes. It says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise. And is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. See, the Bible's quite clear. We are at war. There's a battle raging all around us between the kingdom of God and the tyranny of a cruel insurgency. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Now, this name Satan literally just means the enemy or the adversary. That's what that that word means. 
the enemy or the adversary. And John 10, 10, Jesus says something really profound. He describes Satan as a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says that he has come that you might have life and life more abundantly. One translation, life to the full. And so if there is no neutral ground in the universe, as C.S. Lewis describes, then there can be no neutral people. Every one of us must choose a side. No one gets to be a conscientious objector. I want to suggest to you today that prayer is both communion with God and confrontation with the enemy. Confrontation with the enemy. Communion on one side and confrontation on the other. Prayer is not only about closeness and intimacy with God, but it's also about conflict with our enemy and a fight with our own flesh. The great reformer, Martin Luther went so far as to describe prayer as a constant violent action of the spirit. As it is lifted up to God, as a ship is driven upward against the power of the storm. Thus we must all practice violence and remember that he who prays is fighting against the devil and the flesh. Satan is opposed to the church. The best thing we can do therefore is to put our fists together and pray. Now, over the years, I've heard so many people ask, why is, it, why is it so important that we pray? Because for some people, prayer feels a lot like just begging God for stuff, trying to get him to do what you want him to do. Please, 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 God, do this, do that, in the tone of a child kind of persuading their father. For other people, a prayer feels like just wishing like mad for a goal for your favorite team in the final minute of a football game. <laughs> Listen, everybody, to pray is not to plead from the sidelines. Prayer is the act by which we invade the field of play. Prayer is where we join the team, actively shaping the outcome of the match, challenging and occasionally outplaying an aggressive opponent. See, the Bible's clear. We're engaged in a vicious spiritual battle in which God's purposes are constantly contested. And so the essence of prayer is that we harness our wills. Okay, I want you to get this. We harness our wills with God's will. We hook up to God's will in order to resist Satan's will. Our will hooked up to God's will to resist Satan's will. Which is why prayer is our greatest weapon of defense, but also a weapon of attack. James 4.2 says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. See, there are wonderful blessings that will only be unlocked by our prayers. Wonderful blessings that will only be unlocked by our prayers. And there are terrible evils that will only be restrained by our prayers. You gotta get that. Why do we pray? Because we are collaborators with God himself. And there is no greater collaboration than to hook up to his will. 
and work towards that end. And there are three things that we need to know in order to be effective with this kind of praying. Okay, number one, I must know my enemy. I must know my enemy. First Peter 5, 8 says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, I am very aware that talking about Satan and demons and fallen angels and apocalyptic battles and between these cosmic forces in the universe, cosmic forces of light and darkness, I get it. To many, it will sound ridiculous. Or like a plot from a Marvel movie, right? (laughs) In our modern culture, for the most part, we've replaced biblical cosmology, right? This idea of what's going on in the universe. We've replaced that biblical cosmology with humanistic psychology and sociology and anthropology. Every sin is attributed to some societal or clinical issue. The uh, intellectual Andrew Del Banco in his book, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil, he said it this way, modern people cannot answer the monster's question. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't, even, we don't believe in it. In fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, it has become harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustments. You see, you kind of got to look behind all this stuff. It's fascinating, isn't it? And yet, for all our supposed sophistication in our culture, our news cycles report acts of unspeakable horrors almost every day. People who rape children and imprison strangers and who torture animals and who drop sarin bombs on civilians. Even the media brands these people as evil. And away from public notice, each of us are acutely aware, right? We're all aware of how in ourselves there are dark shadows lurking beneath our public persona and that we have a shocking capacity to hurt and to hate, to abuse and misuse others. There's a fascinating encounter at the beginning of the horror movie, The Silence of the Lambs. I didn't watch it, I just heard about it. In which Carla, uh, Clara, sorry, not Carla, Clara Starling, a young FBI trainee, asked the cannibalistic serial killer, what was his name? Hannibal Lecter, what happened to make him so twisted? And Hannibal says this. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? (laughs) 
could. You wanted me to do it, didn't you? You wanted it. My wife is like, I don't know what that means. I never saw the movie. You're the pure and innocent one, baby. Listen, just read through the Gospels and you will see Jesus dealing with demons over and over and over and over again, almost on a daily basis. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not, this is a big one, this is big right here, because one of the things that happens when, we, when I stand here and I talk about evil or I talk about something, you guys all put it in a political context. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something more insidious and worse in our culture that every human, regardless of their political affiliation, wrestles with. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so number one, you need to know there's an enemy, but it's not enough just to know my enemy. Number two, I must know my authority. I got to know my authority. See, I think many Christians have no problem with recognizing the reality of demonic principalities and powers that are at work in our world today, but I think the problem is that many Christians do not understand their own personal authority to contend against such dark forces. And, and not only to contend against such dark forces, but to win. Look at this picture. This is what we look like. I think a, a huge elephant scared by a little tiny mouse. Oh, it's behind the keyboard. Sorry, here it is. There's a, there, I think we can all agree that the small, this small ball of rodent fluff is no match for a seven-ton elephant, right? But I think this is how so many Christians are with Satan, with the enemy. Too many Christians are timid in their prayers and terrified in their dealings with the enemy. And the moment they see him, they roll over and submit in fear because they don't understand who they are in Jesus and how highly favored they are and how powerful they actually are. Jesus himself said, Luke 10, 19, I have given you authority. Everybody say authority. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power. How much power? How, wait, how much? All. all the power of the enemy. This has enormous implications if we will believe it. Because when we pray, we don't just plead for mercy from the midst of the mess, which is a good thing to do. But we also, when we pray, we exercise authority from above as those who are seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. In the heavenly realms. This is, this is what you have to get, that you've been placed in Christ and Christ now lives in you. And Ephesians says Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians 2, 6 through 7 says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's why we don't have to roll over and submit to the schemes of the enemy. We don't have to cower in fear. We don't have to just lower our head and try to get through the day. 
We don't have to act like an elephant who sees a mouse because we're the sons and daughters of the king commissioned to rule and to reign by his side. Now, you may well be thinking, okay, okay, well, if I'm seated in heavenly places with Jesus, if I'm really being trained to rule and to reign with him, if, if I've actually been entrusted with such incredible authority, then why don't I see more power? Why don't I see more miracles? Why is there still so much suffering in the world? Why does the enemy still seem so much more powerful than me? I want you to think about it this way. Because I think many of us are stuck in a paradigm, a way of thinking. Some of you are discouraged by your external circumstances, the trouble in the world that Jesus said you would encounter. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome. So you get overwhelmed by the trouble. Or you get overwhelmed by the internal evil, the temptations that you partake in that show the dark shadows in your own soul. You get so discouraged that you can't have faith for what Jesus has done for you. This picture that I want to show you, how many of you remember what happened to the 12 boys on a soccer team from Thailand, right, who got trapped in a cave? Do you remember this story? It was a few years ago. I'm going to read you a little bit about that story and just keep that picture up there. It's on June 23rd, 2018, 12 members of a junior soccer team in northern Thailand decided to explore a cave with their 25-year-old coach. They were deep underground when a monsoon flooded the cave entrance. Terrified, they huddled together in complete darkness, almost three miles into the cave, wondering if they were ever going to get out. Their plight hit the news cycles around the world. More than 900 police officers, 100 divers, 2,000 soldiers gathered with the world's media at the mouth of the cave. But for nine days, no one could find the boys. The world watched, fearing the worst, but hoping for the best as a billion gallons of water were pumped out of the cave. And on July 2nd, a diving team managed to get deep into the cave's network of tunnels, crawling, climbing, and swimming against the current with zero visibility. And after more than six hours against diminishing odds, they discovered the boys alive, huddled together high on a shelf in a cavern called the Hidden City. Cold, scared, and starving, they had no idea how long they'd been lost, nor how many people were looking for them, praying for them, but they were saved. The watching world breathed a huge collective sigh of relief and everyone anticipated an, an imminent happy ending on the following day's news. How difficult could it be to get 12 kids out of a cave? But their ordeal was far from over. Getting the boys out was going to be an arduous, dangerous process with tragic consequences and it would take another eight days. For those watching and praying, we, the wait seemed like ages. For those inside, it must have been an eternity. And then on the 14th day, five days after they had been found and one day after the evacuation plan was due to be triggered, one of the divers, a former Thai Navy SEAL, drowned while delivering oxygen tanks to the boys. If a professional diver had died, how could untrained, malnourished children ever hope to escape alive? 
The very next day, the first of the boys were sedated, given oxygen, and slowly brought out of the cave. It was a five-hour journey, much of it underwater, a grueling process that had to be meticulously repeated for each boy over a three-day period. Having been lost since the 23rd of June and found since the 2nd day of July, the last boys were only finally rescued on the 10th of July more than two weeks after entering the cave. Now think about this, all right? Because this is the picture. Because the Bible teaches us that we live in the dark days of hope. Between the second day of July and the 10th day of July. Because we've been found. We've been found, but not yet fully rescued. Our salvation process has undoubtedly begun and we have great hope, but our captivity, our days of darkness are far from over. And unable to free ourselves, we have no idea that all of heaven's resources have been sent forth on a search, a rescue mission for us. And so we have little choice but to wait in the dark caverns of despair, helplessly hoping and praying like those members of that Thai soccer team for salvation. But then a miracle happens. Our prayers were answered. Somehow we were found. A little light entered our darkness. It was all that we needed to see. Hope began to overwhelm us. Love reached us from another world. We knew that we were saved. It's hard to imagine what that soccer team went through while they waited another eight days to be freed. There must have been times of great joy and excitement as they anticipated their favorite food, their parents' hugs, and a warm bed. They thought it was just around the corner, but they must have also experienced incredible frustration in the waiting, the deep distress for the man who had died trying to save them, and the sheer terror of the thought of the ordeal to come. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. He was declaring the death of death, the cure for suffering. He was declaring the remission of sin. And in that single moment, we were found. Light entered the caverns of our captivity. Hope dispelled despair. We were saved by the sacrifice of another. And yet, here we are, still waiting, still suffering still anticipating the freedom that is to come. Here's how the Apostle Paul described it in Romans 8. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with all the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. See, this is the description of what's going on. 
We are eagerly waiting for the full freedom with which Jesus has set us free because we've been rescued. Yes, we've been rescued, but we still keep praying, deliver us from evil. Theologian N.T. Wright said it this way. He said, to pray, deliver us from evil is to inhale the victory of the cross and thereby to hold the line for another moment, another hour, another day against the forces of destruction within ourselves and the world. Why do we need to pray? Because there's so much on the line. For you, for me, listen, we live in a culture of comfort and convenience. And so in some ways we're uncomfortable with this type of prayer, this type of fight but I want to encourage you. The reality is we don't know how many hours or days we must hold the line within the dark caverns of our own experience, but we have every reason to hope that Jesus's cross means that we have been found, that we have been saved, and his resurrection assures us that one day soon we will be completely free. Which then brings me to the third point, and that is, I must know how to fight. I must know how to fight. See, Satan may be, he may be a vanquished foe. He is. Whose demise is inevitable. He's already been defeated. But the aggression of his death throes still seem terrifying. What do I mean? Revelation 12, 12 says he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. The biblical scholar Chuck Lowe says it this way. He says, like a wounded and cornered animal, Satan thrashes around desperately with the aim of injuring as many of his enemy as possible before his own destruction. So the defeat of Satan does not mean the end of trouble for the church. To the contrary, it signals an escalation and intensification of opposition and persecution. But the end is in sight. And those who endure to the end shall be victorious, even if in the meantime, they become victims. I know this is kind of a challenging word to you. But the reality is that we've all cried out for loved ones to be healed, but not everyone has experienced healing. We've all prayed for friends to find freedom in Jesus, and, but not everyone has found that freedom. We've all prayed and prayed against injustices, but there are still atrocities occurring all over the world. There's not always a happy ending in this life. It's absolute agony to lose such battles. But we are assured that the ultimate victory has already been won. John Piper said it this way. He said, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. A wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom with a butler. Until you know that life is war, he says, you cannot know what prayer is for. You want to write that down? Until you know what life is, until you know, okay, let me start again. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. 
And so there are three questions we gotta ask in order to fight effectively, all right? Here they are. Number one, what is the enemy's strategy against the, this person or place? And to answer this question, it's like, you'll need a few things. You'll need, to, uh, you'll need common sense, right? Common sense. Sometimes when we talk about spiritual powers, common sense kind of goes out the window. But tr- the truth is, it's often quite obvious what's happening. It's obvious what the strategy is. You can look around and you can usually see it. But you also need wisdom. Because all bad things that happen are not necessarily demonic. Are you, are you with me? And spiritual discernment is another thing you'll need because Satan can be a convincing liar. Which is why we need to ask the Lord to open our eyes to see and to understand what's going on in the spiritual realm around us. John 10.10, once again, in the Passion Translation, says the thief has only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter, and destroy. The second question, what might God's better plan be for this person or place? And to answer this question, you'll really need to listen carefully to God's word, and especially to his promises, as well as to any intuitions or discernment that you may receive from the Holy, from the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. The prophet said that in the middle of captivity. It was really a dark day. And yet the promise, you had to, they had to hold on to that promise. Third John 1, 2 says, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. What is the better plan according to the scriptures? Third question, what can I now do? What can I now do, both prayerfully and practically, to thwart, thwart, <laughs> to thwart Satan's plan and welcome God's better purposes into this person, place, or situation? Go no farther than the passage we've already Red, I'm going to read it one more time. Ephesians 6, 11 through 18 says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And, having, and, and after you have done everything to stand, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Now, notice that the only piece of military hardware that we can use to mount an attack is the word of God. No spears, no flaming arrows, no battering rams, just the scriptures. I don't know if you've ever heard about something called the daily Bible reading. One of the reasons I believe in getting the scriptures in you, even if you don't quite understand every story, you are filling your life with promises, with stories, with understanding, with with what already sounds like God's voice 
in the scriptures. And so Ephesians, the weapon that's used here is the scripture. This is precisely how we see Jesus fighting the enemy in the wilderness when he was there for 40 days. Matthew 4.1 says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When we were in Israel, we went to this location where Jesus was tempted. I want you to look at it. And, and the, the, the whole thing, that's an actual donkey that was there. Um, there was kids kind of running around. But this, we were on this hill, and we were surrounded by this desert. These deep crevices and pathways in these hills and mountains. It was an arid place. It was, it was dreary. It was the wilderness. Matthew 4, 2 says after, just leave that picture up there. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, says about Jesus. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. See, the devil got wise and he started using the scriptures as a manipulative tool, which by the way, people can use that way. We, we must never, never use it that way against people. Verse seven says, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. See, Jesus responded to every attack from the enemy, every temptation that was thrown at him with the opposing verses from the scripture. In addition to using the word of God as a weapon to thwart Satan's work in our lives and in the lives of others, there's one more thing. It's spiritual, this spiritual resistance that we're talking about also includes standing your ground. You can see it written there in your notes. Ephesians 6, 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, now, standing firm doesn't just mean putting your foot in the ground and being unmovable, stubborn. It can look like stubbornness, but it does, it's not just that. Because a lot of times, standing firm means responding with the opposite spirit. I want to leave you with this idea today. Responding to whatever is happening, whatever circumstances, whatever issues are going on in your marriage or your life or your friendship or your career, or, or, or your friends at school, it means responding with the opposite spirit. So you stand firm against the enemy every time you meet anger with a soft answer. You stand your ground by responding in the opposite spirit when you forgive an enemy who has hurt you. When you share the gospel in the face of being made fun of. When you stand up to a bully without adopting his tactics. When you care for the poor instead of ignoring them. When we behave with integrity when there's an immense amount of pressure to cave. When we practice civil disobedience 
for the sake of righteousness. Listen, everybody, there's a spiritual battle that's raging all the time around you. And you have extraordinary authority to affect its outcome through prayer, through the scriptures, and through standing firm. I want you to close your eyes right now and I want you to just think about what the Holy Spirit is saying to you right now about your words, about your actions, about your prayers because they have far more power than you think. <laughs> 